Hello, and welcome back to Champions of Security. This is your host, Jacob Garrison, and I am stoked to introduce today's guest, Walter Haydock. He's the founder and chief executive officer at StackAware, which is a cybersecurity risk management and communication platform. He's also the author of the blog, Deploying Securely. Previously, he was a director of product management at Privacera, a data governance startup backed by Accel and Insight Partners, as well as PTC, where he helped to secure the company's industrial IoT product lines. Before entering the private sector, he served as a professional staff member for the Homeland Security Committee of the U.S. House of Representatives, as an analyst at the National Counterterrorism Center, and as a reconnaissance and intelligence officer in the Marine Corps. All right. Well, hey, Walter, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks a lot for having me on. Really appreciate it. Of course. So I want to start off with a question, which is, when you think about application security, if you were to rate its effectiveness today on a scale of one to 10, where would you rate it? You know, wh- wh- what do you think, where do you think we fall on that scale? Yeah. So I would say that the state of application security leaves a lot to be desired. And I like talking in quantitative terms when you look at the number of security incidents that are the result of software vulnerabilities or missed business requirements depends on whom you ask, but it's potentially 50% or more of them. You know, there are things that are social engineering and and other uh, insider threat, what have you, that, that lead to data breaches and, uh, you know, other cybersecurity incidents. But I think it leaves a lot to be desired right now. And I think there are efforts underway to improve it and a lot of well-intentioned folks in the field, but I think we got a long way to go. And so, you you know, you mentioned there's efforts on the way to improve it. Can you, uh, would you mind just picking one, one of those efforts uh, and talking about, you know, something good that you see, something positive that's happening in that, uh, in the application security space today? Yeah, I would say that with the emergence of this whole suite of generative AI tools, we're going to see developers that are effectively going to have security superpowers. They're going to understand much more easily and effectively what the best practices are for writing secure code. Uh, We've seen tools like ChatGPT that can help identify security vulnerabilities just, you know, just looking at the code, they can help interpret code, you know, identify potentially even malicious um, code in, in third-party packages. So I think there's huge opportunity in terms of these these AI tools. There's also risk, no doubt, and we'll, we'll talk about that as well, because you could potentially accidentally expose sensitive information about your application or your network using these same AI tools, although I think there are ways you can use them more more effectively, more safely, while mitigating some of that downside risk. Okay, well, there's a lot to unpack. Let's let's start with the positives, the positives, the opportunity. So uh, let let's say an organization has the risk mitigated. You know, it's at their risk tolerance level, um, and they're using these tools in a way they think's effective. Um, how you know you mentioned that developers can find vulnerabilities in their existing code. Um, or they can create new. So, so let's say, um, let, let's say they're, they're creating something new. How can you ensure that what you're getting out of a generative AI tool is 
is uh, you know, secure, safe for a business? What what are the steps you need to take to ensure that what it's telling you to to put into your code base um, is is positive? And how can that accelerate your efforts? Yeah, so you, you touch on some important points there, and I think this applies generally to AI, not just in the context of security, but AI can't yet really tell you what to do. It can tell you how to do things very well. It's really good at that. But it can't really tell you what the right thing to do is. So, for example, uh, in the security context specifically, security requirements are extremely important. So, you know, ChatGPT doesn't really know what type of app you're building. If you're building an app that allows you to share, you know, pictures of your dog on the internet, then confidentiality is not really going to be a big concern for you. It's probably availability, if anything, that's going to be the biggest concern. Although, I mean, frankly, like the stakes are pretty low there. But if you are processing patient data from a medical trial, you know, that's a whole different ballgame. And ChatGPT is not really, or any is not going to be able to tell you how you should treat that data, except at the you know the highest levels, if you're asking kind of a boilerplate response. So the key is understanding what is the business purpose of what I'm doing before you get into coding, uh, before you get into even even designing. Because once you understand that, the what, then the the how is much easier to to arrive at using using these tools. I like that example. Can we dive into that further? So let's say I'm building an app and we're uploading medical information into this app and I want to use AI for my efforts. Uh, you mentioned, you know, even when you're designing, thinking about what the risks are. So how how do you handle that as a business? I'm going to be I'm going to be inputting medical information that's sensitive and I'm going to use AI in some capacity to solve that problem. What for you as, you know, let, let's say you're a, a stakeholder in the business or, or a, you know, lead for the project, whatever the position is, how do you go about uh, understanding the risk that's associated with me inputting that data into a generative AI tool? Or, you know, am I even allowed to input it at all? What, what process would you use to handle that situation? Yeah, you, you mentioned a, an important phrase a couple of times there, which is risk tolerance. And specifically in the medical space, you'll you'll hear people say things like, oh, we, we accept zero risk. No risk is an acceptable risk. And and frankly, that's that's both not true and not helpful because we use software for medical records, we use it for diagnostic purposes, we use embedded medical devices that have software on them. So the first part is kind of getting past that stage of, of saying, well, we have no risk tolerance, you know, no risk is an acceptable risk because that's not true. And there are also lots of opportunity costs and risks. For example, if you've got a doctor that needs to manually review lots of records, you know, that doctor isn't spending time on higher value activities, working with patients, doing things that AI can't do if he or she is just kind of in a very mundane way going through uh, data and, and categorizing it or, or doing something of that nature. So you got to look at the downside from the you know opportunity cost perspective 
when you're going into a situation like this. That's something that's really critical to take into account. And a, another thing that a lot of people would have you know, a lot of heartache with me saying is that you, you need to measure that downside risk and the security risk in the same terms. And there's really only one way to do that, and that's in terms of dollars. You know, again, I can see all sorts of people getting ready to, to leave nasty comments and argue with me. Can't measure patient safety in terms of dollars. Uh, unfortunately, we do all the time. It happens. The government puts uh, a price on human lives. So, like it's public information. There's no, you know, it, it's not fun to talk about, but we got to do it because we got to decide, you know, where, where are we going to make the trade-offs? What are we going to, um, you know, what are we going to optimize for? And like I said, if you say we're going to spend uh, $40 trillion making this the most secure system ever, okay, great. You have $0 for anything else. Uh, you don't have any doctors that you can pay. You, you know, nobody can afford anything. So it, it's unfortunately all going to be a trade-off and you need to get pretty clear about that upfront and understand what you're optimizing. So establishing your risk tolerance is subsequent to, to that because you're going to need to say, okay, there's, there's a certain probability of something bad happening. Um, you know, could be, say we're using a third-party AI tool. That third-party could be breached uh, and they could potentially expose our patient data. They could be just not very good at their jobs and and they're wrong about their data processing policy and maybe they're using data in ways that they said they aren't just by accident or maybe they're even lying about their data processing uh, or data retention policies and maybe they're a malicious actor in that respect. So these are all things you need to keep in mind when you're deploying an AI system specifically in a, in a more sensitive use case, but, but in general too, you need to understand what's the risk from a cybersecurity, but also you know, functionality or, or cost perspective. And then what's the reward from in terms of the, the value delivered to, to the customer. Interesting. And, and yeah, you mentioned that people say, oh, you know, no risk is an acceptable level of risk, uh, but there's always, there's always something like I, I had a, uh, I had dental insurance where my account ID was my social security number and I had to give it to the, uh, the person at the front desk of my dentist for them to bill my insurance. And I was furious. I was furious about that. I'm like, but this company, uh, who I won't name was doing well, you know, and they were making every single person submit their actual social security number to their individual dentist to get to, for billing. And it was. So, I mean, there's people out there that are throwing caution to the wind uh, and are operating just fine. And it goes back to what you said about there's a price for everything. And it's the apparently the cost of creating unique identifiers for their for their customers was higher than the perceived benefit. But OK, so, so back to the back to the A.I. I don't know. Not in that case, that doesn't sound like a good kind of business process anyway, because you've got a social security yeah. number, got dashes like, a you know, a, a, I mean, as a standardized number of digits, but that just seems like a very clumsy way of doing things. And also the, the risk from, you know, from a breach is extremely high uh, or, or increased um, marginally as a result. So, yeah, I don't, I'm not sure. I understand. Yeah, no, I, I was I was very upset when I found out. Uh, <laughs> but to get into the, how AI could, could help. So I want to focus on something specific, which is the idea of training an AI model, right? And the data set you train it on. Um, and 
what are the what are the risks associated if you're trying to train a model that's going to interact with sensitive data? You know, what level of sanitization are you able to do on that on that training data set? Um, or how do you ensure that that let's say it's your model and you're training it on your own sensitive data? What steps do you need to take for that process to be safe for this application? Yeah, great, great question. So it, it goes back to the business requirements. Since large language models, in in essence, I mean, there's obviously a whole lot more to this than, than what I'm about to say, but in essence, really are just predicting, they're filling in words, you know, that the model thinks are the most appropriate given the prompt and given its training data. So, you know, it's if you say Mary had a little, you know, the, the model would probably say lamb uh, as, as the next word to be generated, uh, again, Huge oversimplification, but that's essentially what's happening with these LLMs. So you need to think about that in terms of how you're feeding data into the system to train it. So if it's critical that the system, let's use your social security number example, I'm not sure why this would be, but you know, you probably don't need an LLM for social security lookups. You should probably just use like a structured database. For this, but assume that you need the full social security number returned to you um, as you know as you're as you're running the model, then you know, you're probably going to need to train the model on full social security numbers, and that's a very sensitive model that you need to make very uh, sure you know who has access to it uh, because it, if you ask you know what's Jacob's social security number, it, it'll it'll tell you and. You know, you need to control that information. Now, that's that's not a good use case, or that's not a good approach. You know, I, that I could for, for any reason that I could think of. So, so let's let's focus on something more realistic. Like, you know, given these symptoms, what are the potential causes uh, from a, from a clinical or diagnostic perspective? Now, that's kind of a, a much more reasonable use case or you know given this this x-ray results you know this picture what is the probability that this growth is cancerous or you know that it's a broken bone or, or, or something like that that's a much more reasonable use case and you do you will need to feed in clinical data you know to achieve a useful output but here are some things you you don't need to input to get that useful output social security number for example or even name like you don't need to know the name of the person whose x-ray this is of you some things you do probably need to know are like the person's sex age um things like that and maybe previous history like does this person you know do a lot of alpine skiing uh you know that that might factor into your diagnosis of whether it's a broken bone or not so those are important things to to factor in when you're training the model, but the the PII is not in in this specific use case. So what you want to do is you you don't want to train the model on on the PII. You don't want to submit it to it. Uh, it doesn't need to know that information. You can use some sort of unique identifier um, for the patient if you need to. That is is kept away in some other database. Um, you know, service the key, the Rosetta Stone for for the model or, or from the analyst, if the person ever needs to go back and say, oh yeah, this person actually does have a cancerous growth. We need to notify him that, that the results are 
positive. So the key is understanding what you're trying to use the model for, and then using that as the basis for how you feed it data. And you know that gets tricky with these generative AI tools and these you know chat interfaces because it's very freeform. You can just kind of copy and paste things into into the system. Um, so some things that I'm looking at and I'm expecting a lot of innovation in the space is, is kind of the front end sanitization where you can use, and I, I have an open source project called GPT, GPT Guard, which does this, which can essentially identify things that look like credentials, that look like IP addresses, that look like people's names. And essentially, as that's going in, you, you obviously need to put this in front of your uh, you know, whatever your AI model uh, ingestion method is. But as that's going, the data is going into the system, you can capture that that name, that IP address, and then just put in a placeholder instead. Now, again, this isn't fail, uh, you know, fail safe or it's not foolproof. There are going to be ways that you can, people are going to accidentally, you know, input sensitive information into these models. But those are some some steps you can take um, kind of on the front. I'll, I'll pause there in case you have any more. Yeah, no, it's, I didn't, first off, I didn't know you had that project, but it's, it's fascinating because I was actually thinking about that yesterday. I was like, oh man, what if you just had your own internal portal that people had to input through and then you go through and sanitize the data before you submit it. Mm -hmm. So the fact that you already built it is, yeah. uh, is cool. <laughs> I was thinking about that actually yesterday. So yeah, and there are, uh, there are companies that, that are commercializing what I did in an open source way. One of them is called Protect AI, and they for it's designed for data scientists. Essentially, it sits on top of your Jupyter notebook, which is a just a pretty common way that data scientists write Python code, and it will do that sanitization in stride. Cool. The more you know. So, so when we think about this whole process, uh, you know. It, it kind of feels like the wild west out there right now where where people are just using it however they want to. So let's say we want to build a, a governance program across the business. We want to, you know, have our standards. Um, where do we who needs to initiate that internally? And, and what does the process look like for building a program internally to make sure that that AI is handled responsibly? And, you know, there's a set amount of risk tolerance uh, in the business and that it's being adhered to. Can you just kind of walk through how you recommend people, like the details people need to go through to, to set that up? Yep. hundred percent. So step one is have a program and there are lots of companies I'm sure out there that don't and are essentially flying by the seat of their pants. And then on the other hand, something that I would say you shouldn't do is don't just ban use of these tools. We're seeing lots of companies doing this for various reasons. I think number one would be they're concerned about the potential loss of sensitive data from, from their employees using these tools. Uh, I'll have to say, you know, you might put a dent in the employees using these tools, but I'm pretty sure they're going to keep using them. And, you know, employees are experts at circumventing security controls if they think that the controls are preventing them from doing their jobs effectively. So, you know, I'll give you an example, like in Google Workspace, you can prevent anyone in your organization from using Google Bard, at least you can right now, but that does nothing to prevent someone from opening up his 
personal Gmail account going into BARD and then just using it anyway. So if you're going to set up intentional obstructions without any sort of way to analyze the risk and allow for risk acceptance in certain situations, then people are just going to go around the process. So I would strongly encourage security professionals out there not to say we're banning it. Um, so, so I'll start there. So assume that you do want to develop a more nuanced policy. That's going to be, you know, I think this is an appropriate area for CISOs to advise business executives on what a policy should look like, and maybe they should drive the effort. But I think all security policies should be owned by non-security people. They should be owned by business people. It should be a general manager, uh, chief operating officer, maybe even a CEO, CEO who puts a signature on the dotted line on all these policies. That's because these individuals are the ones who are trading off all those risks. They face competitive risk. They face technological risk. They face you know, legal risk from you know, non-security issues. And then they've also faced the security risk. So the people who own all of those risks should be the ones signing off on these policies. That doesn't mean they need to be the absolute expert in all the technologies and, and you know the workings of them, but it should all make sense for them. When the security team comes in, when a policy has the name of the CISO on, you know, approved by, you know, in a lot of organizations, other business units will say, like, I don't work for the CISO. He signed the or she signed the policy. Okay, that's great. That applies to the security team. That doesn't apply to me. And that's makes it difficult to get buy-in from from the business units, which that's kind of the reason that the security team exists is to enable those business units. So making sure you have buy-in from the people who are using these tools is is important. Some things that you should consider are taking the uh, you know taking a look at what sorts of data you want to allow to be fed into generative AI tools. For example, you know if you're doing math problems, that's probably something benign that you don't really need any sort of sanitization or restrictions on. Assuming you know people aren't taking like company financials and, and doing math with them that, you know, prior to the, the earnings release, you know, that's probably something you don't want to be input into a, into a generative AI model without any sort of controls. So looking at uh, data classification, that's, that's important. Uh, you know, data inventory, understanding what sort of data you manage. That's, that's really critical. Also important is your third party risk. So understanding what your vendors are doing with your data. And, you know, a lot of the stuff is going to be controlled contractually through data processing, addenda, and, and other agreements. But, you know, I've seen a lot of these things written in ways that are um, boilerplate and clearly have not been reviewed by a subject matter expert. You know, for example, uh, I saw a, uh, a data processing addenda that required a customer to not input any sensitive data into uh, a certain system and it defines certain types of data. But the whole point of the system was to process that sensitive data. And obviously it was just an attorney taking a contract template and just saying, you know, hey, here, here's here's how we're going to run it. But like had the customer signed it, they would have just been in something of an infinite loop where like you know, the whole point is to input the sensitive data into the system, but they can't because they said yeah. they put it in the DPS. 
So making sure that these things aren't just boilerplate is is important and making sure you're having like very clear requirements with your vendors. If it's, you know, if, if it's not time for contract renewal, then you should look at, you know, uh, how you interact with these vendors. Because obviously you can, you can, you know, there are four responses to risk. There's, you know, accept, transfer, mitigate, and avoid. And if you've got a vendor, uh, you should ask some hard questions of them and say, you know, how are you using generative AI tools? Um, how are you further sub-processing the data that we give you? And if they give you an answer that doesn't sound very good, then you've got a risk management decision to make in that case. Is this a mission critical vendor where the business unit is going to fail if they can't keep relying on them? I mean, that might be a risk acceptance decision. If it's really risky, but the business value isn't there or the you know there's, there's not a mission critical need, then that might be where you say, hey, you know, vendor, your answer isn't any good and, you know, we're going to stop using your service. And when our contract comes up for renewal, we're not going to renew until you give us you know, a better answer. So third-party risk, that's something to think of. And then also the, uh, you know, I think this is, this is future looking, but it's not that far off that, that we shouldn't be thinking about it, but like existential risk type things. Um, there was a research paper that OpenAI put out where they, I think they took kind of the safety uh, catches and, and training wheels off GPT-4 and, and told it, you know, they tried to see how aggressive it would get. And it, it actually successfully tricked a human into solving a CAPTCHA. So, you know, if you see something like that, that's probably where you might want to slam the brakes. If you see the AI doing uh, something malicious, uh, you obviously intent is kind of a it's is irrelevant because it's a machine it's not thinking but if it just if it just does it then that's something you want to look at as well so those are all some high level considerations for our data governance program i do have a draft template of a generated ai security policy that is freely available uh, i'll send that over to you afterwards so you could put it in the show notes and people are free to use it it's uh, open source license perfect yeah it'd be amazing so you brought up a bunch of points that I'd like to dive into. I'm going to start I'm going to start with the first one, which was you're talking about having other members of the business, not um, not the security team specifically, but other members sign off on these security policies um, to make sure that it's it's something that everyone agrees upon and and acts in accordance with. Um, I guess who do we need from each department to be the subject matter expert to vouch for their department's use case or realistic expectations? Um, like, is it really important to have the data science team sign off on the security policy? You know, do they need to be very aware of what's going out there? Should they be in those, those conversations? Which, which stakeholders um, or members of a company do you think you would want to bring into that conversation when you're building out your acceptable use policy for, uh, for, you know, your tool that will either is is like an AI model internally or is referencing a third-party one? You know, who who are you bringing into that conversation specifically? Great question. So the way I approach decision-making is there needs to be one person who's the decider. And I actually developed a decision-making framework called Pride that builds off something uh, called the Rapid uh, framework, which the consulting firm Bain put together. But essentially, there needs to be one person who's making the, the decision and everyone can have input 
And then there are people who have required um, participation in the process. So the, the person deciding should be the business unit owner. So if the data science team, uh, you know, if that if they have some sort of revenue deliverable, I think that's a good signal for who should be the decider. For example, like if the general manager of this business unit gets fired because she didn't meet her revenue goals, that's that's probably the person who needs to be the the decider. On the input side, you 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 can cast a net far and wide. I think it's very important to make clear when you're collecting input that it's input. It's not you know you are not making the decision here, and we will listen to your objections, but you are not you are not a uh, you don't have a veto on the process. And you know you mentioned some important people to take into that. That would be you know data scientists individual at the individual contributor level. You should look at. You're talking about third parties. You should look at the procurement team. You know who's, who's negotiating contracts with third parties. You should look at um, you know developers if you're building models internally. Uh, engineering that's an important place to look. So uh, some people that you also should have what I would call required consult consultation with would be uh, the the CISO or or a designee. Should be somebody uh, either the general counsel or or on the general counsel's team, whoever is designated. And then, if you have a data privacy officer, then that person should also be uh, kind of a required consultation. Now, again, I, I think it's important that none of these people have veto power because you know if you have veto power, then you can basically then then you're kind of in charge uh, as long as no one else tries to veto what you do. And you you need to be clear that it's the business owner that's owning these risks. So that person will be the ultimate arbiter of of the decision, but those are some some key people that you should take into process. Cool, yeah. The the I guess it's going to be increasingly important to have relationships across every department and have people that you you know can you trust in every department because, like you said, it, there's a lot of people that can be affected, and I think especially in these early days, it's hard for companies to to know exactly what they're going to do. Um, and, and so another thing you brought up was the whole idea of third parties. Um, you said, you know, is it a mission critical vendor? Do we need their service? Um, so let's say, let's talk from the, I guess we go either way, either from the business talking to the third party or the third party fielding these questions. What, what questions are you going to ask? What are you looking for, uh, to inspire confidence that this is a person you can trust? Or if you're, if you were the vendor that people can trust you, um, you know, like how, can you can you dive a little bit further into specifically what you want to see from a third party that is using generative AI tooling? Yeah. So I am generally not a fan of security questionnaires. I think they provide a false sense of security and, and generally waste a lot of time. So that would be my my least popular option when you're getting these assurances. Um, but you know, sometimes that's all you have. You may not have uh, the leverage or the time or the expertise to do anything more. But, you know, I would recommend that you either ask for the vendor's policy on AI usage. And uh, if they don't have one, then that's probably a red flag right there. If it's do whatever you want, then that's probably a red flag. If it's ban it, that's probably a red flag. Um, if it's nuanced, then, then that's more interesting and you should you should take a look at that. Sometimes organizations won't provide their internal policies. I would say, you know, that's pretty, uh, 
that that's ag- aggressive or or very protective, and uh, I I guess I can understand it, but uh, I'm generally more open in terms of suggesting how a company communicates its security posture. So you could potentially summarize your own restrictions and say, can you confirm that you comply with these? That's that's something you can do. Um, if you want to get kind of more into the technical needs, some things you can do are look at. Uh, Software bills of material. The the Cyclone DX standard allows for you to represent both services and components. So if this third party vendor is running a local LLM, uh, you know that's and they're using some Python package to to run that, then that should be in the software bill of material, so you can see what they're what they're doing with it. If they're using, if they themselves are using another third party, so a fourth party in, in this case then I would want to see that fourth party reflected in their software building materials as a service um, and and you can track it that way. And then uh, some other controls you can look at, you know, kind of at the extreme end would be if you have a right to audit the the vendor that might be built into your contract, you can, you can demand uh, that they comply with that contractual obligation and let you into their systems you know, as much as as the as the contract allows to confirm or deny that the data is flowing in the ways that they claim it is, you're probably never going to get into the source code level, um, but you might be able to see the Jira tickets and and things like that. Again, depending on what your audit rights are. So those are some steps you can take to uh, investigate a third party's use of AI tools. Yeah, make sure that what they're doing, uh, you're comfortable with their use. Do you think you could take their software bill of materials and feed it into an AI tool and say, hey, do you think this is safe? Should I give this person <laughs> access? And just get yourself into an infinite loop of security checks that way. So good good question. I've done quite a bit of work looking at software bills of material with AI tools, and I'll tell you they're not quite there yet. GPT-4, which I think is the best kind of publicly available LLM, uh, it, it doesn't do great with with SBOMs. It, it kind of gets confused because there are so many subfields and you know there are objects within arrays within objects within arrays, and it just kind of gets a little bit a little bit confused pretty quickly. But I can see in the future that that will uh, potentially be a thing you can do. And you know, I'll, I'll give a plug to, to my own company, StackAware, which is designed from a risk management perspective to just ingest a software bill of material and tell you from a vulnerability perspective, you know, what's the risk from this SBOM. From a generative AI use perspective, we don't have that capability, but that's definitely something to consider because it, uh, you know, it's going to be increasingly on people's minds and, and having kind of a map of the AI tools that your vendor is using based on their SBOM is definitely something that could be of interest. Yeah, I've seen so many random AI startups come up too. So the the number of vendors that are out there in this space, uh, I imagine it's growing exponentially at the moment, probably. Uh, and it'll be interesting to watch which ones make it, how they consolidate over time. Because, uh, yeah, right right now, there's just so many companies out there. Um, and, and I have to imagine that a lot of them are, you know, trying to do like the first to market and not, not uh, worrying as much about the policy and the security of their AI practices. It's more important to 
make money and survive, I would, I would guess at this stage. Um, cause like you said, everything's a trade-off and if you're spending too much time on security and your competitors are, are out there making, generating revenue, right. Who's going to stay afloat long-term it's, it's, it's such a crazy space. There's a lot going on. I will say that you know, this is kind of almost cliche at this point, but building it in early is going to save you a lot of effort in the long run and just having basic security kind of policies, procedures in place, having that infrastructure is is going to be important. And I do see a lot of startups that kind of ignore that, but it does come back to, to haunt them. And taking a long view, kind of a long run view of the risk reward, I think some early investments will pay off in the, in the long term. Yeah. So c- can we talk about um, specific frameworks and, and regulation and, and what's out there? So NIST has their AI risk management framework, and I'm sure you're more familiar with it than I am. They also released a playbook. Um, how, how do you think, you know, or from, from what I read, it says that everything is optional at the moment. Um, you know, like there's suggestions, but it, like pretty much every field said optional. So when do you think that these things are going to be no longer optional, if ever? And and how can companies start making sure that they're, you know, compliant with these frameworks and and they're in line with what regulators are going to expect in the future? Um, can you kind of walk through the the process that companies should be thinking of uh, just to make sure that, like you said, like they are. Um, they're in line with what's going to be expected of them as this regulation uh, develops over time. Yeah, great question. So I'll, I'll tackle that in two pieces. I'll start talking at the higher level. So there are agencies in the U.S. that have already said AI is regulated, make no mistake. For example, the FTC, you know, false or misleading promises or advertising is, is prohibited as are um, kind of maliciously designed uh scams and, and things like that using AI, those are those are illegal right now and doesn't require any new legislation or regulation to further prohibit them, whether or not they use AI in, in the execution of, of these things. So uh, I think it's important to take a relatively light touch with AI regulation at the highest levels because the worst thing that we can do right now is drive AI innovation outside the United United States. And, you know, if you look at some of these locally, uh, these LLMs that you can run on a local machine or just on a Google collab notebook, you know, they're pretty powerful and it's, it's very difficult to stop someone from, from running these models. So pushing things overseas is something that we should avoid as, as a country. And I think whatever the, the downfalls or whatever the risks domestic AI development are, they're going to be much worse uh, overseas and I mean, primarily in China because the Chinese Communist Party is very focused on AI development and their use cases are much more sinister than you know most of what the US is focused on, which is mainly just making money. And obviously there are downsides there and I, I'm not saying no regulation, but I think having a light touch is important. So that's kind of at the higher level, at the more tactical level. In terms of the AI risk management framework that NIST put out, I think it's a good initial look at AI governance, I'll call it. As you mentioned, you know, I haven't seen anyone demanding kind of certification uh, with 
or against that framework. And if you look at the NIST cybersecurity framework, you know, that was a relatively high level approach that was flexible enough that it got pretty broad adoption, even outside the United States, it kind of became a standard for a lot of businesses and, and governments. And I think the AI RMF has the potential to do the same, which is good. I will say though, that it is, it is both quite voluminous, but also quite vague in its requirements. You mentioned the playbook, you know, the playbook has paragraphs and paragraphs of different things that the AI system should do. Like, is it explainable? Is it, you know, does it take into account privacy considerations? These are all important things to consider, but they don't tell you specifically what to do. Like a developer would look at those requirements and say, hey, uh, product manager, I'm going to need a little more specificity here because I don't know exactly what that means. So they're going to require some interpretation at the individual business unit level. And I think we're going to need to see some more uh, standardized implementation guides. I, I don't think this is a perfect analogy, but something like NIST uh, Special Publication 853, which is a essentially just a, a catalog of security controls that can be applied in compliance with other standards, for example, like FedRAMP. I think we're going to need, need to see something like that. I have some issues with 853, but it's still you know, a useful tool because it, it gives you more concrete ways that you can go about in managing information security risk. And I think we'll see the same or we'll need to see the same when it comes to the AI. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, to your point, it's, it makes sense at a, at a high level at an exec level. Okay. Like, hey, think about these concerns. Think about these topics. Um, that's, and that's all well and good, but yeah, the people that are building it, uh, you know, they could argue that no matter what they build, it will comply with those high level requirements, right? Like make sure you're sanitizing and they go like, okay, we're going to, we're going to input this, this regex thing that looks for this type of input. And if that matches and it's cleared and boom, we can check that box. Um, but that might not be, you know, thorough enough to, to satiate the needs of the business. So, so yeah, getting more granular, um, I think will, will definitely be an important thing um, for the people building the system. And, and yeah, having, having it as a, as a standard that exists out in the world, um, like, you, you know, you brought up 853, having something out there that people can lean on. So it's not, not everyone's reinventing the wheel. Um, that goes back to your idea of, of the spirit of innovation and keeping it within, you know, keeping it within the U.S., um, having something that companies are able to leverage so they can focus more on what they're building and not focus so much on interpreting those policies. Um, I mean, it helps with entrepreneurial spirit, the time to market. I think all those things are going to be really, really important. Um, but I mean, it, it's gotta be scary, uh, to be the one to say, Hey, this is specifically the like individual requirement we're going to make because it is such a vast field with so many use cases and it's so, uh, there's so many nuances based on your business model. Um, so do you think it would make sense for them to say, Hey, we're going to put all, all PHI or HIPAA or, or high trust or, you know, medical things. Um, you need to follow these standards. Do you think it'll get split up based on uh, type of type of data that you're processing? Like how would it make sense to, to split up the policies so that they are more individually tailored? Um, or is that 
you know, I guess, do you have thoughts on that today? Yeah, I, I'll say that I think the frameworks that actually provide some sort of document at the end, like SOC 2 or ISO 27001, will eventually incorporate concerns or, or implications or, or uh, you know, sections related to AI, specifically generative AI use. The, I don't think the AI RMF will ever you know, have a certification or attestation that accompanies it. Um, although I'm sure there will be people who will want that. They'll want their product kind of AI RMF certified. Um, but I think the other standards will eventually catch up and incorporate those, those things. So, you know, you mentioned, um, like, uh, I mean, I think HIPAA, HIPAA is, is, is a pretty, is a pretty broadly written statute with the privacy and security rules that, you know, I, I don't think it probably doesn't need too much tweaking specifically in the, in the realm of, of AI, but I think the implementation of of those rules is going to be is going to require a lot more detail and then you know all these all these frameworks are very high level in terms of what they require and i think you're going to need to see industry standards emerge for how to comply with them and that's where i think there's a lot of work to do because we've seen industry standards emerge you know from the vulnerability management space like the common vulnerability scoring system that i really don't understand how that became the standard and it's kind of set the space back for a long time. So I I really want to avoid, since we have this somewhat greenfield opportunity to, I want to avoid any box checking mentality or kind of baking in ways of doing business that are counterproductive right now. And I think we have an, an opportunity to make AI governance a, you know, a much more reasonable way of, of, of overseeing systems and processes than, than, uh, you know, the, the state of the art for a lot of other security fields. Yeah. And then you mentioned CVSS, uh, being you know, the way that, that that exists in organizations today. And, and do you think that the auditors that are coming in and looking at, uh, AI risk, like let's say you, someone specifically an AI auditor, um, I guess, Really, the question I want to ask is, do you think that will be a role? Will there be someone that audits specifically for how AI is, is used in an organization? A hundred percent. Yeah, I definitely think that's coming because especially when you're having automated decision making based on artificial intelligence models, you know, if it's it, say you just set up like an entire business unit that runs on this AI model and it's making decisions. If it's one percent off from what it should be, then you're you're going to go pretty wrong pretty quickly, and and then also from the security and governance side of things, like if it's accidentally leaking sensitive information, like that can go pretty wrong pretty quickly. So I definitely see AI AI auditing becoming a a major thing, so to speak, and you know I think there will be a lot of opportunity in that space to do assurance of AI models and systems and processes. The future is bright and vast for these systems. It'll be interesting. Uh, hey, Walter, we're running low on time. So I want to give you the opportunity to make to make a call to action or, or speak to the audience. Um, so do you want to take this, take this moment to uh, say whatever it is you want to say? Yeah, I really appreciate speaking with you. The thing I would tell the audience is that 
I am putting together a course specifically on AI security, governance, compliance, and privacy with four-time CISO Robert Wood. And we're going to be running that later this summer. And it'll be a deep dive in all these topics that we got into. We'll provide actionable frameworks to help organizations comply with existing regulatory requirements and anticipated future ones. So if you're interested in that, I'll definitely send over a link to put in the show notes and uh, feel free to hit me up on LinkedIn if you're interested in learning more, because I think it'll be a great course and we're going to break a lot of new ground there. Perfect. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So if you're listening and you uh, you want to learn more, make sure you talk to the AI master himself. <laughs> Great. Well, Walter, thanks for coming on. Uh, it was a pleasure having you and I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. All right. Really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Champions of Security. Be sure to come back next week. We're going to have another exciting guest on this very streaming platform. See you there.